Good morning. We're, uh, okay, now everybody move over to this side. No, that was last week, did that. For you ladies that weren't here, we had a one-sided service. I'll let you figure out what that was here. We're going to read uh, from John chapter 21, the first uh, 17 verses, as Pastor Cliff comes and uh, continues uh, teaching in John. We're really getting close, aren't we? To... Then he does six weeks of recap, but no, I'm sorry. <laughs> John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called a twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that, he heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, and for he was stripped from work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to the disciples, was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. How's everybody doing? Thanks, Charlie, for reading. We did. We went back last week, uh, ladies, and 
others who weren't here. Uh, We covered verses 1 through 14, but I wanted to get the whole context. We're just looking at 15 through 17 this morning. Last week we talked about fishing. We had 10 lessons on fishing. So did anybody catch any fish this week? Okay, sorry. It's a prying question there. In our text for today, the focus moves from fishing to shepherding. Jesus calls Peter to tend his lambs, to feed his sheep, to be a shepherd of God's flock. You know, shepherding is the central image in the New Testament for what it means to be a pastor. In fact, the word shepherd and the word is the, the word pastor is the from the Greek word to be a shepherd. Now I need to make a confession. <laughs> I've never been a shepherd. I've never I've I, I've fished on many occasions, but I've never been a shepherd. I've never taken care of an actual literal sheep. Sorry, Gary. Gary's the shepherd among us. So I take great comfort in the fact that neither Jesus nor the disciples were actual, literal shepherds. Jesus grew up in the house of a a carpenter. His adopted father, Joseph, was a carpenter. And he certainly learned that trade. And most of the disciples, as far as we know, were fishermen, like their fathers before them. So thankfully, you don't need to be a literal shepherd to be a pastor. But I do want you guys to know that I've had experience caring for animals. When we moved to Riverside in, in 1976, we joined, my, my brother and I, we joined the 4-H club, the local Woodcrest Pacers. Woohoo! And following in the footsteps of my father, whose dream had always been to be a, a pig farmer, I raised swine. We call them swine, not pigs, in 4-H. Is that right, Dad? Yeah. And, and, you know, I've often wondered if God and his sovereignty gave me that experience of caring for pigs because he knew one day I would be the pastor of Bridges Christian Fellowship. What? Is that a problem? Is that a problem? You know, all I meant was pigs are much smarter than sheep. That's scientific, a scientific fact. Sheep are the dumbest animals on the planet. Pigs are very smart. I've, I've raised them. So that was a compliment. You guys took it way, way wrong. So we're in the final chapter of John's Gospel and very close to the final message. In fact, after that pig thing, this may be the final message. I don't know. We had an elder retreat and the elders reviewed me my, for my last year. I'm hoping by next year they'll forget that. Little comment. Maybe not. Jim's writing it down. Last week we saw that in a sense, John had concluded his gospel in chapter 20. Chapter 21 is is an epilogue. It's designed to answer questions that are, are left unanswered in the main body of the gospel. And the main question that needed to be answered by the disciples, I'm sure this is what was on their mind. They'd been in ministry with Jesus For three years, remember we talked about it, he had told them what to do step by step. He was discipling them, his physical presence there among them. So they're thinking, how are we, the disciples, to continue Jesus' work in this world now that he's no longer 
going to be with us in the same way. Even then, I mean, he's still physically on earth, but he just is popping in in different places. Before this, he had been with them, walking with them, living with them. The first part was answered last week in that, in that living parable we discussed in verses 1 to 14. As Jesus revealed himself with that miraculous catch of fish, they recognize him, and he reminds his disciples that they've been called to be fishers of men. Now beginning in verse 15, as the encounter focuses specifically on the Apostle Peter, Jesus points us to the second aspect of our work in the world. And he moves from the fishing metaphor to the shepherding metaphor. The work of shepherding, discipling, caring, loving the sheep, the flock of God. The work of taking the fish and transforming them into sheep. I don't know how those two metaphors fit together. You fish them and then they're sheep. Yes, as we were reminded last week, that's the mission of the church. Our mission is seen in these two scenes here. The mission of evangelism, the mission of discipleship. But there's something else going on here, especially in these verses, 15 to 17, that we'll focus on today. It's certainly related, but we want to focus in on this. Another question that had been left unanswered in the body of the gospel was, what about, what about Peter? In John chapter 18, we saw Peter deny Christ three times. And in John chapter 21, we see Jesus, the good shepherd, restore Peter to the ministry of shepherding God's people. But to understand the story of Peter's restoration, we need to go back and we need to review Peter's fall. And so that's our first point, a review of Peter's fall. You know, and we often think just of Peter's fall happening in in that moment in John 18, or it's actually recorded in all the Gospels. And that certainly was the climax, the start of his fall. But his fall started before that. Falling, failure rarely occurs in a moment. It usually has warning signs. Something's coming. Earlier that evening, in fact, in the upper room, earlier in the evening of of Peter's denial, in the upper room, Jesus told his disciples that he would be leaving them. He's preparing them for the crucifixion. He's preparing them for, really, the ascension, that he would be leaving them and that they couldn't follow where he was going. Then he gave them a new commandment. It's sort of, I'm leaving you guys. It's going to be you guys. Obviously, and he's going to tell later, I'm going to be with you, even to the end of the age, but it's going to be different. So I'm going to give you this new command. Verse 34, a new commandment of John chapter 13, I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. This command he gives to the disciples. And and Peter, instead of focusing on this new commandment of loving the other disciples, begins to think about Jesus' other statement that he was leaving. He's worried about, instead of loving, he's worried about losing Jesus. And he wanted Jesus to know just how much he loved him. Jesus, I want you to know how much I love you. Or at least how much he thought he loved him. And that, that's a key. How much Peter thought he loved Jesus. So in John 13, 37, just a few verses later, Jesus is given a command to love one another. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Lord, I'll go where you go. I love you so much. I'll die for you. 
But Jesus knew, knew better. Next verse, verse 38. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will crow, to, will crow till you have denied me three times. Will not crow till you have denied me three times. You know, Peter, Peter must have been stunned by Jesus' words. I mean, I, I wasn't there, but I can imagine just stepping back, even, even literally from those words. They had to hurt. I can hear him saying, he's wrong. I'll never deny him. No matter what, no matter what the others do, I will never deny Christ. I can hear him saying that because that same evening, later, when the disciples leave the upper room and are traveling to the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter says it again, and he says it twice. We read it in Matthew, Matthew 26, 31 through 33. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I will never fall away. Jesus then repeats the the same thing he had said earlier in the upper room, the prophecy of Peter's denial. Verse 34 of Matthew 26, Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But Peter answered again. Peter said to him, verse 35, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. These are bold, self-confident words. Peter says, I will never fall away. I will not deny you. I will lay down my life for you. Later that night, Jesus would say these words, famous words, John 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. And I'm sure as Peter heard those words again, he said, right, and I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. I love you that much. He believed his love was that great. But we know Peter didn't lay down his life for the Lord. At least not then. Instead, he denied the Lord three times. Peter's denial is, is, as I said, one of the few events that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. I'm sure he really enjoyed that fact. I put the verses in your notes for referencing, but, but just to summarize, while Jesus was on trial... Peter was outside in the courtyard of the high priest. And when questioned by different people, different little circumstances about his his relationship with Jesus, who was inside on trial, he said, I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not his disciple. The climax of Peter's fall is seen in these three denials. But it began with a self-confident proclamation of his willingness to give his very life for Jesus. This is the epitome of the the words, pride goeth before the fall. Have you ever made great self-confident claims about your relationship with Jesus? Maybe you claim, maybe you've claimed that Jesus is the most important thing in your life, your number one priority, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But at work or at school or in your neighborhood, 
people don't even know you're a Christian. Or at least they, they don't know that it's important to you. They may know you go to church. They don't really know anything about who you are in Christ. You may not, like Peter, have verbally said, I'm not his disciple. But your silence and indifference communicates the same thing. Or maybe you vowed to do something for the Lord. I'm going to read my Bible and pray every day. I'm going to share my faith at least once a week. I'm going to tithe to the church. I'm going to serve my community. But you failed. You haven't lived up to these self-confident proclamations. You can relate to this. And I believe we all can. I certainly can. Then we can relate to Peter. We can relate to his fall. We can relate to what he must have been feeling. And we can thank God for the truths of John chapter 21. We can thank God that he's a God that restores. We witness the restoration of a fallen man and that gives us hope that when we fall, Jesus will be there to restore us. You see, one of the greatest things about Christianity is that falling doesn't ever mean you're finished. For those who will, like Peter, bring their failures to Jesus, there's always hope, there's always forgiveness, there's always restoration. How many times should we forgive? Seventy times seven, you think Jesus doesn't follow his own words? But we have to come to him. Remember, when Peter recognized Jesus on the shore, he jumped into the water and he swam a hundred yards to get to him. Just a little side note. This is the main difference between Judas and Peter right here. Both failed miserably. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. But Judas ran away from the Lord and hung himself. Peter swam to the Lord and experienced restoration. It's really the key. It's the direction you're going. So let's look at this, this restoration. It's really awesome. Second point, a, a question of love. A question of love. Notice how Jesus begins the restoration process. The issue is love. Three times he asked Simon Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you. But there's something very important going on here that's not clear in our English translations. In English, we only have one word for, for love. We've talked about this before. We know this. We love pizza, we love our wives, and we love God. All the same word. But in Greek, there are several words for love. And in our passage, Jesus and Peter use two different words. Jesus uses agape. We're familiar with this. It's the word always used in Scripture in relationship to God, in relationship to the love of God. For God so agaped the world. God is agape. It's a selfless, sacrificial, God-empowered love. Peter, however, uses the word phileo. His word expresses a more human, friendship kind of love. And it's a good word for love. Phileo can be a very strong, powerful, emotional love. We have it. Hopefully we have it for one another. 
We have it for our family. It's a good love. In fact, Paul commands us to have this kind of love for one another. Jesus in the commandment said, agape one another. A new commandment, agape. He uses the word agape. Paul in Romans specifically uses the word phileo. Love one another. Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The words love and brotherly affection here are both from the Greek word phileo. It's really the best of man's love. It's the best we can do. I tell you this because this passage is is often used to point out how bad Peter's failing again. He's just not living up to Jesus' expectations. He's, He's not getting it. He doesn't know what Jesus is demanding him. And he's not striving to love him like he should. But I want us to think about it a little differently this morning. I want us to understand that phileo, again, is, is probably the highest possible love that humans by themselves can have for one another. It's a strong love. It's a family love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It comes from this word. It's that love of, of, of brothers, spiritual and physical Agape, God's love, can only be experienced through the power of the Holy Spirit. Agape, God's selfless, sacrificial, giving love, is not natural to fallen humanity. And Peter didn't have it. And he knew he didn't have it. And he knew that Jesus knew he didn't have it. So he doesn't claim to have it. Let's listen again to the exchange between Peter, Jesus and Peter with a with a clear understanding of these two different words. Verse 15, Simon, son of John, and I'm going to put some stuff in here. Simon, son of John, do you love me with God's Holy Spirit-empowered love? Do you love me more than these other disciples? Remember in the upper room on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter had implied that he loved Jesus more than the other disciples did, and that he would prove it by dying. In light of this, Jesus is probably asking him, okay, Peter, what do you have to say now? You once boasted that your love for me was so powerful that it would result in you giving your life for me. You said that you loved me more than all the other disciples. Is that true? Do you love me that way? And Peter is is clearly a changed man. You know, it's oftentimes our, our failures that make the greatest impact on us, especially when we're willing to see them and take them to Jesus, which is what Peter does. He's clearly changed. He's been totally humbled by his denial of Christ, and so he's unwilling to claim this agape love. Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you with everything I have, but I don't have agape. The best I can do is phileo. I do love you. You're you're my family. I love you like a brother. This is a new, humble Peter. He's not saying that he doesn't love Jesus. He does love him. He's just not boasting in that love. And he's definitely not saying that his love is greater than anybody else's. The second time the Lord asked, in verse 16, this question of Peter, he uses the same word for love again. Though this time he, he mercifully doesn't include the comparison. He doesn't say, well, what about these guys? Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me with God's Holy Spirit-empowered love? 
Peter replies as he did the first time, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you with everything I'm, I'm capable of. And the third time, verse 17, the question is asked. The Lord comes down to Peter's level and uses Peter's word. And you're not going to get this in the English. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me to the best of your ability? You love me like a brother. You love me like I'm part of your family. In a real sense, Jesus is saying, all right, Peter, I know you're capable of, I know you're not capable of the the kind of love I'm asking you for, this, this agape, selfless love. And you're right in responding that you only have this other love to give. And I accept that love. I take that love. Jesus knew Peter's heart, and he knows our hearts. He knows if we love him or if we don't. He knows exactly how much our love is for him, how far our love will go. And and there's no sense in claiming love that doesn't actually exist. You and I need to evaluate our response to Jesus' question, do you love me? And our response needs to be honest because he knows all things. And I wish personally I could say that I always love Jesus with his God-empowered agape love. But I clearly don't. I fail to live up to his high standards. I, I, I fail to spend the time with him that I should if I really agape'd him. I fail to obey him as I should because I, I really don't agape him. I fail to love others with, with this agape love because I don't really agape him. But praise the Lord, I I don't always fail. Jesus knows my heart, and he knows that I do love him to the best of my ability. Unfortunately, my ability often, can I say this, sucks. I guess I can, because I did. But I'm not without hope. God's agape, spirit-empowered love is available to me, and it's available to you. Paul wrote in in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love, God's agape love, has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. How do you, uh, let's be clear here, how do you get this love? Reflect back on what Chad shared with us this morning. You must, you decide in your brain that I'm going to love God with agape love. Never happened. The Holy Spirit pours it out into your heart. Here's the facts, according to the Word of God. This is the facts. If you're a child of God, then you've been given the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, God's agape love has been poured into your heart. So if those are the facts then why do we struggle to love like that? Why do we struggle to love God like that? And why do we struggle to love one another like that? As I thought about that question this week, the answer sort of became clear. It's because I don't really believe the facts. I don't really believe I have this love within me. And therefore, I don't live in the reality of those facts. Now, that might sound... Well, how do you, what does that mean? If it's a fact, it's a fact. Well, suppose I were to deposit a million dollars into your account. It ain't happening, but suppose. 
The fact is, you are now a millionaire, whether you believe it or not. But the money will do you no good until you know it belongs to you, until you believe you have it, and until you start using it. The same is true in the Christian life. God has declared. The truth is, I've deposited some amazing things into your life through the power of the... First of all, I've deposited the Holy Spirit in your life, and the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. And You have all that stuff. It's there. That's a fact. But until we believe it and start using it, we won't experience it. It's a believing problem that we have. So again, as I thought about that, and my lack of love, I, I thought, well, well, I need to strive to have more love. Right? Isn't that our natural reaction? Of course it is. It's what we do. It's what we think we should do. And I realized, no, no chance, can't do it. And that just drove me to my knees. It drove me to prayer. I began to ask and, and even beg God, help me truly believe that this agape love has been poured out into my heart. Really, Peter's a great example. He doesn't have it yet, but he's doing the right steps. He's running to Jesus. That's where you can start experiencing it, when you run to Jesus and allow him to restore you. And he's doing that. He's doing that for, he did it for Peter, we'll see. He's doing it for me, he'll do it for you. And I'm not saying, I'm not claiming, there's no self-confidence here at all that I totally agape Jesus now. I don't think I'll totally be able to do that. I don't think any of us will totally be able to do that, this side of, of heaven. But I am saying that God is at work. He's at work in my believer, so I can believe it, and he's at work in my actor, so I can act it out. God will work in your heart. He's working in my heart, helping me to love more. Helping us to demonstrate that love by loving his flock. By tending his sheep. That's the command that comes out of Jesus' love. Out of the love for Jesus. Do you love me, Jesus asks. Yes, Lord, we love you to the best of our ability. Then demonstrate that love and care for those who are near and dear to my heart. My sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Peter was certainly restored to relationship with Christ. His love for Christ needed to be examined. He needed to think about that. But it didn't stop there. Out of a restored relationship came a restoration to ministry. In, uh, what day was it? Friday night. We were in the secret church together and David Platt was taking us through the New Testament. And it was really good. One of the things he said that stood out to me is, and this isn't a quote, it's a paraphrase because I didn't have the, I didn't write it down fast enough. Basically he says, the New Testament takes place in the context of mission. The New Testament takes place in the context of ministry. That's what it's about. We'll not understand the New Testament unless we understand it was given that we might accomplish the mission that God is calling us to. The mission of fishing, the mission of shepherding. So he's restoring Peter to be something, to be a man that loves the Lord Jesus Christ with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and out of that to do something. 
to be a shepherd. Last night, Christine and I went to uh, King High School, was putting on the play, I never say this right, Lemez, Lemez, Lemiserables. I took French in, is that horrible? I took French in college, I got a C. But there's such a power, this is, a, this is one of my all time, it's in my top five. The best movies, by the way, in case you're wondering, are not the ones with a bunch of superheroes smashing up stuff. Those can be fun. But the best movies are the ones where human beings are transformed, not into robots, but are transformed in their heart and soul. And that takes place in this movie in a powerful way. And in this play we saw last night, it reminded me. In the play, if, if you're aware, it's about a guy named Jean Valjean. And uh, he's caught for stealing bread. He serves this long prison term for that. And then he's let out. And he's been transformed by the prison experience. And he doesn't know what else to do. He wanders around. Kids are kicking him. And he's not having a good time. And he ends up in the home of a, a bishop. And in that home, the bishop is just overwhelmingly kind to him. Loves him with agape love. It's a, it's a picture of that agape love. And Jean responds by stealing some silver and runs off. Nice move, Jean. And he's caught, and he's brought back to the bishop. And what happens is amazing. The bishop says, oh, he didn't steal those. Uh, he, in fact, you forgot. Here, take the candlesticks, too. Take the candlesticks, too. And after the, the police leave and say, okay, so he's not going back to prison. The, the bishop challenges him. And I don't remember the exact words. They were sung last night by high school kids, and I didn't really get them. And I haven't seen the movie in a while. But uh, really, the words are the grace and forgiveness he gave. But then he says something. He says, now go and do something with that. I've given you the resources you need. Now go live a better life. Live a better life. Be a better man. And he did. And that's the rest of the story of the movie. It's an it's a outstanding movie play. Whatever. Be different. Impact your world. That brings us to our third point. A command of grace. I think that was what the bishop was giving Jean Valjean. And I think that's what Jesus is giving Peter. Three times Jesus commands Peter to shepherd his flock, feed my lambs, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. I say it's a command of grace because it's, it's not what might logically be expected. It's not what Peter deserved. Remember, grace is getting what you don't deserve. And Peter did not deserve to be restored. He didn't deserve to be a shepherd anymore. He lost that. Peter had been a leader and he had fallen hard. For Jesus to come to him and restore him to ministry was, was amazing grace. And you can't, miss, you can't miss it because Jesus repeats it three times. How many times did Peter deny the Lord? Three. How many times did Jesus restore Peter to ministry? Three. Jesus wants Peter to know that even though that denial was a serious matter, it can't be ignored. You have to repent. You have to come to me. And Peter did that. You have to repent. You have to renew your commitment of love. But when he does, when Peter does come to Christ, grace is what he finds. 
Grace is what he finds. Grace is often difficult for us to understand. The world offers very little grace. When I was in college, I got a job as a a box boy at Stater Brothers. And I was a a hard worker. I really was. I ran every possible... My goal was to become a checker. And the harder you worked as a box boy, the quicker you got to be a checker. I knew it because your pay went from, I think, we got paid really well, $7 or something to $13 an hour, 1982. Good stuff. So I ran. I ran and I bagged groceries. I ran to get carts. I ran to help customers. Whatever. I, I was running. And because I worked so hard, my manager put me on morning crew. And what that meant was I was the box boy that would come in at 6 a.m. before the store opened and clean up all the mess that the night crew, these guys that got paid the big bucks already, so they didn't use their time to clean up anything, I brought in as the lower paid guy to clean up everything they had done the night before. And I worked hard at that, cleaning up their messes and, and, and always having the store in great shape by 7 a.m., got that hour to pick up all their messes. They, they seemed to drop a lot of pickle jars. I don't know what was up with that. Maybe they would open, eat the, a pickle, and then throw the jar in. I don't know. So when 7 a.m. rolled around, I was finished. It was good until I wasn't one day. One morning, I came in, and, and it looked like the stock crew had had a food fight. There were broken items all over the store. It was just a mess. Like, like never before. And so when seven came around, I was still at work, cleaning and cleaning. When I was finished, which was, I don't know, 7.30 or so, I heard my name over the intercom. Cliff, come to the office, please, Cliff. I don't know why they say your name twice. I want to make sure you really heard it. And I knew this was not good. When I got there, the manager began to give me a hard time, to say the least, to yell at me and berate me, and I hadn't experienced that before. And I, you know, was not the kind to punch people, or I probably would have. Said things I couldn't repeat, can't repeat. And my only, and my only response was this, I did the best I could. I did the best I could. And his response to me was, well, I guess your best isn't good enough. Hallelujah. Wow. (laughs) What do you do? And I'm so glad that Jesus is not like that at all. Notice that each time Jesus asked Peter, if he loves me, do you love me with his God-empowered agape love, this selfless, sacrificial love? Peter responds with, yes, Lord, I, I love you to the best of my ability. I love you like a brother. Jesus doesn't say, well, I guess your best isn't good enough. Get on the stick. He says, all right, Peter, I'll work with that. I'll work with the love you have. Because I know it's the best you have to offer right now. And he says the same exact thing to you and I. If you'll give yourself completely to me, if you'll come to me, I'll work with what you have. By grace, I'll work in and through you. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul speaking of the gifts that God's given the church to do ministry. And in verse 6 we read this. Verse 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, it's all grace, let us use them. 
If prophecy in proportion of your faith, if service in serving and teaching, teaching, if one who exhorts in exhortation is one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Really, a lot of this has that, that idea of shepherding. And we, I mean, we think, you know, we all are called to be shepherds in one way or another. We may have little aspects of it, and we call our leaders our shepherds, but really we all, we all have ministries of, of shepherding. The gifts that you receive for ministry are given by the grace of God. All too often, we don't get involved in ministry. We don't step out to help fish for men. We don't step out to tend the sheep because we don't believe we can do it. And we're right. That's totally true. Peter's phileo love for the Lord, although good, was actually not going to cut it. It wasn't good enough. It was good love, but it wasn't good enough. When push came to shove, because it's not like Peter's love changed. Peter loved Jesus before. And when push came to shove, Peter denied him three times with that kind of love. For Peter to do the ministry that Jesus was calling him to, he would need the agape love. He would need to love his his brothers and sisters with the godless, self-sacrificing love. He'd need to love the people God called him to 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 evangelize with that kind of love because there was going to be some sacrificing. He would need to love the Lord in a complete, total, self-sacrificing way. He'd need to sacrifice his time, his talents, his treasures for the ministry that God was calling him to. And Peter couldn't do it. And we can't do it. But Jesus knows that he can't do it. But he knows he can do it through us if we're willing to go to him. It all comes back to going to him. To give him all we have. To go all in with what we have. Even if what we have isn't good enough. You know, I said earlier that I took care of pigs, swine we called them, uh, growing up in 4-H. But really, to be honest, uh, my dad took care of pigs through me. You know, because I didn't know what I was doing. He had to walk, he had to tell me what to do and show me what to do. But I got better at it. He walked alongside, teaching me, guiding me, doing the things with me. Many of the times, just doing them for me as I watched. The castration is tough. I just, sorry, I threw that out there. <laughs> Jesus, though, can transform us. He can transform. He can take our limited abilities, change them into what they need to be. Jesus can and will, through the power of the Holy Spirit, He did it in Peter's life, He can do it in our life, transform the best love that we have to offer into the agape love of God. Remember, Romans 5, 5, God's love, agape, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Jesus restores Peter to ministry. He graciously tells Peter to feed his sheep, to care for his followers. Peter, Jesus saw in Peter a man who had fallen. But instead of giving up, Peter had hung in there. This is a key principle. Guys, when you fail, hang in there. Christianity is about getting up over and over and over again. Peter hung in there. Unlike Judas, 
who just hung there. Peter went to the tomb. Peter encountered Jesus. Peter was in Galilee waiting for the Lord, fishing. When Peter saw Jesus on the shore, he cannonballed into the... He, he says he threw him, you can see him just throwing himself into the water, swimming. He couldn't wait for the boat. I thought boats were faster. Peter must have been uh, early... What's it? I was going to say Mark Spitz, but I would alienate some people, so I'll say Michael Phelps. Do any of you guys follow swimming? Those are good swimmer guys. Okay, sorry. Thanks. Peter took what he had left and went it all in with it. And as we know, Peter was then used mightily by the Lord. He began, he became that shepherd, that leader of God's people. And eventually he went to his death for preaching the gospel. <laughs> He did die for the Lord. He just didn't do it when he thought he was. He went to the, to the church says, legend says that he was crucified upside down, that he was going to be crucified and he said he wouldn't die the same way the Lord did. And so they crucified him upside down. He went to his death instead of denying Christ. And we're probably not going to have to go to our death. For, we might someday, I don't know. But that, that's really a, a good marketing slogan. You know, come follow Christ unto death. Because that's what he's calling us to. The Holy Spirit had poured out the agape love of God into his heart. This, this is what Jesus saw when he restored Peter to ministry. And he's able to restore us also. Each of us in the same way. Maybe in the past you've denied Christ with your words or your lack of words. Maybe you've committed some quote-unquote major sin and you don't believe you're qualified anymore for ministry. Or maybe you've just stopped doing ministry. You used to do it. Maybe it's been so long since you fished for men or shepherded God's flock, ministered to other believers, that you don't, you don't believe that God can use you anymore. You're, you're rusty. You stored yourself away. And you don't believe you can come out anymore. But that is not the case. Jesus is waiting by the shore. He has some food and drinks. He invites you to come and eat. To come and have fellowship with him. And if you're willing to dive in, to give everything you have, which is not good enough, let's be clear, But Jesus can make it good enough. He can make it better than good enough. He can make it exactly what he needs it to be. If you're willing to do that, then you can be restored. You can be empowered to do ministry, to make a difference for Jesus Christ in the world. The, the bishop gave Jean Valjean the, the silver. Jesus gives you the Holy Spirit that you might impact your world. Today, as we come to the communion table, I just want to encourage us to picture Jesus on that shore, bidding you to come and eat, to come and, and remember that he, he had died for them, to come and remember the cross, and to come and remember his agape love for us, that selfless, sacrificial love. Come and offer everything you have to him, realizing, you know, maybe it's, Maybe that's all I got. 
Maybe I don't even have that. But I'm willing to come. I'm willing to be honest. I'm willing to tell you what I have, Lord. It's not about what you have. It's where you're willing to go. It's not about who you are. It's about who he is. And if we can do that, if we can just come to him, I think we can leave this place restored and empowered to accomplish the ministry that that he's called us to do. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask Mark to come forward. Mark Easter's going to lead us in communion this morning. Father God, thank you so much for your grace, for your love, for your mercy for us. Lord, we are so feeble. We just seem to be stumbling around in this world, failing over and over again, Lord. But, but Lord, I pray and I thank you that as we fall, you're there to, to pick us up. You're there waiting by the shore to eat with us. Lord, I pray that we would do that. I pray for myself and each person here that on a daily basis we would, we would pick ourselves up, we would give ourselves to you. We would say, Lord, here I am. When you say, do you love me, we'll, we'll examine our heart and we'll say, the best I can, Father. I'm not sure where I am today, and, but I'll give you all I have. Lord, I pray that you would give us the, the ability to come to you and the ability to, to be fishers of men the ability to be shepherds of your flock, to care for people with the love of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.